I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi, chapter 2 and verse 17, and we'll be reading on into chapter 3, all the way to verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable to a group of people whom Luke says trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But as the story unfolds, we come to see that this parable is not merely a parable about how we ought to view and to treat others, but rather is about who will be justified in the sight of our God. Jesus said to them, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector was a stinging rebuke of the self-righteousness of the religious leaders of Israel who eagerly anticipated the coming day of the Lord when, in their minds, Messiah the King, the Son of David, would appear and pat them on the back and congratulate them for their fastidiousness and all of their religious law-keeping. 
That was their actual expectation. They imagined that they were preparing the way for the coming kingdom by their scrupulous works of religious legal righteousness. Which is why when the true king did appear, they did not believe him. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he didn't meet that most basic of messianic qualifications. He failed to appreciate their religious awesomeness. Well, when in fact Jesus did appear, he was not impressed, as this parable shows. In fact, Jesus' harshest words and most scathing judgments were reserved for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees did not see themselves that way, of course, but Jesus did. Sons of hell, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers, Those are just some of the descriptions and titles that Jesus lays upon them in the last week of his life in Matthew 23. Jesus does not tolerate self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, we are all of us familiar with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In fact, they are often the target of our derision. They become the ironic foil in our own self-righteous diatribes against self-righteousness. But the Pharisees do not own the market on self-righteousness. The seeds of their self-righteousness can be seen in Israel in Malachi's day, and we must take great care and exercise great caution that they do not reside within our own hearts in our day. Because self-righteousness is a deadly disease, for it blinds us to our own sin and to our own need of repentance. So this morning, this text is for us an opportunity to examine our hearts under the light of the Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture, lest we be as surprised and dismayed on the day of the Lord's coming as the Pharisees were. The passage before us today is the Lord's response to the people's indictment of him on charges that he was unrighteous and unfaithful to his covenant with Israel. So you see in verse 17, these, this is their accusation, their indictment of their covenant Lord. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And here's what they were saying. Everyone who does evil is good. In the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking where is this God of justice? Just try and and wrap your minds around the astounding irreverence which these accusations betray. 
By the time that Malachi appears on the scene, Israel has been a nation for over a millennia. And ask yourselves, just how many of those thousand years did Israel walk in righteousness before their God? From their very inception, by the Lord's own testimony, they were a stiff-necked and faithless people. And they have the gall to accuse God of unrighteousness, of, of negligence and unfaithfulness in His role as judge. That's exactly what they did. They claimed that God not only approves of the wicked, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, but that He actually takes pleasure in their wickedness. And He delights in them. Then they added the charge that God was absent, unfaithful to His promises, negligent in His duties. Where is this God of justice that we keep reading about in the Psalms and in the prophets? We don't actually think that He's paying attention. This is nothing short of blasphemy. I challenge you to conceive of an evil greater than calling the holy God unholy. Calling the righteous one unrighteous. Of accusing the God of justice of injustice. Of saying that the faithful one is unfaithful. What on earth had happened to provoke such an indictment? Well, I believe that these charges arose from their political and economic circumstances. As we learn from our introductory sermon in Malachi, the people of Israel were surrounded by pagan nations and did not have a kingdom to speak of. They were under the rule of Persian oppressors. They were poor. They were assaulted and afflicted on every side. And what I believe that they're referring to here in this charge of injustice are to the pagan nations that surround them, particularly the Persians who ruled over them. As Israel looked around, they saw their neighbors worshiping false gods, living open, immoral lives, and yet they were prospering far beyond the people of Israel who were working ever so hard to please God. You know, slogging through the intolerable burden of temple worship, chapter 1. Laboring under the yoke of the law, chapter 3. And for what? For, for what are we, are we bringing all of these sheep in and slaughtering them? For what are we paying these tithes? And for what are we, are we living under the, the bondage of the law? Why? What does God give us for all of our service which we render to Him? We are poor and weak and languishing under Persian rule. That's why. They're accusing God of unrighteousness and calling the evil ones, the Gentile nations around them, get it, them, they're the evil ones, calling them good and accusing God of unfaithfulness and, bringing about, and failing rather to bring about justice for the righteous ones, namely us. They deserved better from the Lord, Right? Well, such is the deadly effect of self-righteousness because it blinds us to the reality of our own sin. It puts, it puts lenses on our eyes that causes us to see unrighteousness as outside of us. It's in them. 
People outside of this walls, people of the world, they're the unrighteous ones, wicked sinners. Wish they were holy like us. Righteous like me. Causes us to see ourselves as morally and religiously superior to others. And superior even to God himself when he fails to recognize this little fact. God's response is terse. Chapter 3 verse 1. Or rather 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. The God of limitless patience is growing tired of listening to their whining. They're ignorant in their self-righteous indictments. They had asked, where is the God of justice? Well, the Lord's response in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3 will reveal that the God of justice whom they seek is coming. He is coming soon, and when He arrives, it will not be as they think. He will come to dispense judgment. Yes, but judgment that will begin with the household of God. Before we move on to the Lord's response in chapter 3, I think a word is in order here about the legitimacy of questioning God's righteousness and faithfulness. It is not uncommon for me to be asked whether it is right to be angry with God. We've all known those who in a time of deep tragedy and loss and suffering and affliction and tribulation have angrily responded with questions like, where is God? Why would he let this happen to me? Many of us have probably been there ourselves. When I answer this question, is it ever right to be angry with God, I often get a very startled reaction because the answer that people are expecting is, yes, it's okay to be angry with God, and my answer is no, it never is. People assume that there are times when anger towards God is justified. Or they assume that your emotions are, are something that you can't help and therefore an emotional reaction is not sin. But no, it is never right to be angry with God. It is always sin, specifically the sin of unbelief. To be angry and to express that anger in the form of a question like, where is God and why would He allow this to happen to me, betrays the fact that you believe either that God has made some mistake or that He has acted in unrighteousness. It betrays the fact that you believe that if you were God, you would have acted differently. You would have acted better. But isn't this evil? Is that not unbelief? Is, is that not a failure to believe that the omniscient God who sees the, the end from the beginning always does what is wise? Is it not a failure to believe that the holy God who loves righteousness and hate, hates wickedness always does what is good? Is it not self-righteousness to claim that God should have treated me in, in some particular way and that I don't deserve my current circumstances? Is that not exactly the accusations that 5th century Israel was laying at the feet of their covenant Lord? No, it is never okay to be angry with God. It is never right to question His righteousness 
But, in our sin, we often fail to respond to times of affliction, tribulation, tragedy, loss, suffering, in perfect faith. In our weakness, we we often respond in anger and in some measure of unbelief. And in those times, listen to me, it would be an even greater evil to pretend that you're not angry. To come in here and to put on a hypocritical mask and to conceal your struggle. So if you find yourself angry with God, the proper response is to take your anger to God, to own it, and to ask for grace to understand your suffering and for faith to trust Him through it. To say, blessed be your name. You give And you take away. Blessed be your name. And it takes time to get to that point where you can say that. So is it sin to raise your fist to heaven and to say, why would you let this happen to me? Why would you allow your beloved child to go through this time of such deep loss and grief and tragedy? Why? That's sin. But we're sinners. And God is patient with our weakness. And He understands that we are but dust. And what He wants His children to do in those times is to come to Him and to say, I am angry. And I'm having trouble trusting you in this trial. But I repent. I don't want to be angry and I don't want to be unbelieving. Help me understand and endure through this. Israel should have trusted God's wisdom, righteousness, and faithfulness to His promise. Instead of self-righteously charging God with unrighteousness and unfaithfulness. But if in weakness and sin they, they chafed under the political oppression, and if in their poverty and their suffering they found themselves doubting God's goodness and His grace and His promise, listen, there is a better way to ask why or how long, O Lord, than to approach Him like this and to accuse Him of sin. There is a way to approach God in humility and fear that is far preferable to the blasphemies that are pouring forth from their mouth. Where is the God of justice? They asked. Well, the Lord responds by saying that He is coming. Quickly. Suddenly. And that Israel is not at all ready for His appearing. Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. 
then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Whoa, the sojourner. That means that he's talking about the sorcerers, adulterers, liars, oppressors of the, of the employees and the widow and the fatherless within the bounds of Israel. So Israel's not so righteous as they think. It matters with which lenses we view ourselves, our own or God's. I will draw near to judgment against those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Where is the God of justice? He is coming, declares the Lord. But when he comes, it will not be to pat Israel on their back, to congratulate them for their righteousness, or to apologize for his slowness in bringing about the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord is not coming to apologize, and he is not coming to congratulate. It will be rather to purify for himself a believing remnant, and then to rain judgment and retribution down upon a wicked and faithless people. Malachi's prophecy contains three distinct phases or stages of the Lord's coming. And I want to walk through those with us and then we'll wrap it up and make application to First Baptist Nixa. Number one, there is preparation. Before the Lord comes, He will send His messenger to prepare the way before Him. The image here would have been familiar to 5th century B.C. Israel. It was an ancient Near Eastern practice of a king to send a messenger ahead of him in order to inform the inhabitants of a distant land of his impending visitation so that preparations could be made for his arrival, so that the way could be paved before him, so that obstacles in the highway could be removed. See, the king doesn't just show up. His coming is announced and preparations must be made. Well, that task was appointed to John the Baptist. And it is him of whom Malachi speaks in verse 1. He is the voice who is crying in the wilderness saying, Prepare ye the way for the Lord. Make straight a highway in the wilderness for our God. John was sent by God to the people of Israel to prepare them for the arrival of the king. How did he do it? How did John prepare Israel for the king's coming? John exposed their sin and their self-righteousness, the very attitude, by the way, which is being displayed in Israel in Malachi's day that is displayed in their indictment of God in verse 17, and by calling them to repentance and to baptism. Listen Listen to a summary of John's message when he shows up on the scene and begins to prepare the way for the king's arrival among the people of Israel. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, the sandals of whom I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Does that sound like a congratulatory message? When the king comes, John says, the messenger. When the king comes, he is coming to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. To separate the wheat from the chaff. To gather the wheat into the barn and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, in other words, John is telling the people, the king is coming and when he comes, he is going to give himself to two great works. To purification and to punishment. To deliverance and to destruction. To salvation and to judgment. To a baptism in the Holy Spirit and to a baptism with fire. And that is precisely what God is revealing here through Malachi. When the, when the messenger has come, when the way has been prepared and his coming has been announced, end of verse 1, then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So remember the context. The Lord is not pleased. He is wearied with their words. So his tone here is ironic. It is sarcastic. They thought they wanted the Lord to come and to visit His people. And God promises that the Lord whom they seek will indeed come into His temple. But when He comes, what will He find? Acceptable worship? Is that happening in the temple? Or polluted offerings, money changers, and a den of thieves. They thought they longed for the messenger of the covenant to come and to bless them for their faithfulness and to shower down upon them prosperity and to renew for them the kingdom and to drive out all of the, all of the unbelieving pagans from their, from their midst. Oh, He is coming, God says, this messenger in the, of the covenant in whom you delight, but who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears. See, as it turns out, Israel was not at all prepared for the arrival of their king. Well, just as John would later promise, and just as Jesus would later fulfill, Malachi says that the Lord's coming will involve those two great works. The first is purification. Malachi compares this to a refiner's fire, and to a fuller's or launderer's soap. He then takes the first of these images of purification, that of the refiner's fire, and he expands upon it. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and of Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. The reason why Malachi focuses here in verse 3 on the sons of Levi in particular is because it was the priests who, who offered the sacrifices of worship to the Lord. Offerings that had become polluted and defiled as we saw in chapter 1. But that he is not merely referring to the priests and the sons of Levi is evident in verse 4 when he expands it to all of Judah and all of Jerusalem. All of my people will bring acceptable offerings into my house. So although none can endure the day of his coming as they are, although none can stand when he appears, although none are righteous, not even one, Yet the coming of the Lord will purify a people as a refiner purifies silver. You saw this happen in droves when Jesus appeared on the scene. You saw it in the adulterous woman whose life was full of sin. And Jesus says, I forgive you. I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He perfects and he purifies. That woman became a worshiper of the one true God. To what end will the Lord come? Well, God desires worship. This is the end for which the world was created. This is the end for which the saints are redeemed. God desires pure worship offered in righteousness. Which again is what Jesus said about His coming in John 4. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking, is seeking, is currently seeking, namely through me. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Another immoral woman whom He transformed into a purified worshiper of God. The King is coming to purify for Himself a redeemed multitude of blood-bought worshipers who will sing for joy at the revelation of His glory. But not all will be purified at His coming. Not all will be gathered into the barns. Not all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some, many, will be baptized with that unquenchable fire. For the King is coming not only for purification, He is also coming for punishment. For judgment I came into this world, said Jesus that those who do not see may see, those are the purified, and that those who see may become blind, those are the punished. When the king comes, said John, he will come with an axe in his hand to lay it at the root of the trees of Israel, and every tree that does not bear the fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the message of Malachi 3.5 in which the Lord says that He will draw near to judge unrepentant Israel for her sins. And then He lists a number of them that were transpiring within Israel. Sorcery. 
Those are occultic practices, divination, witchcraft, fortune-telling, adultery, perjury, bearing false witness, social injustice, the systemic oppression of society's most vulnerable elements from the hired workers to the widows to the orphans to the immigrants. All of these sins merit the Lord's judgment, and because of these, He is coming swiftly to bring retribution, and they all arise from one core sin. They do not fear me, says the Lord. Where is the God of justice, they had asked. God tells them, you will see the God of justice coming, and His judgment will be fierce. And it will start with you. Now it was revealed to Malachi that the Lord would come suddenly into His temple. The messenger of the covenant will come. And His coming will be preceded by a messenger, another messenger who would prepare the way before Him. And we know that this was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, the preparer, the first messenger. And in the ministry of Jesus at His first coming, He is the Lord who comes suddenly into His temple and He is the messenger with a capital M of the covenant. What was not revealed to Malachi in the 5th century B.C. was that the Messiah's coming would actually take place in two stages. That there would be a first and a second coming. Malachi, standing here from the prophetic perspective, saw those as one and the same. We who stand on the other side of the first coming of Christ can see that they are, in fact, two different comings. At His first appearing, that is, by His life and His death, Jesus redeemed a people from sin and death and hell, purchasing them at the cost of His atoning blood. He then rose again from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and sent forth His Spirit, baptizing His redeemed remnant in the Holy Spirit such that they would be purified and refined like gold and in order that they may be able to offer unto Him acceptable worship like we've done this morning. And He is coming again a second time at a day and an hour that no man knows but the Father Himself. What will he do? He will gather his purified possession to himself. He will bring the wheat into the barn and he will baptize the earth in fire. Purification and punishment, salvation and judgment were begun by Christ at his first appearing and will be consummated by Christ at his second appearing. Which means... That we hear Malachi's prophecy in essentially the same way as did 5th century B.C. Israel. We are both looking ahead to the coming of the Lord. The King is coming. He will come suddenly into His temple. What now is the temple of the new covenant? His church. And who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand 
when he appears. So Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So how shall we prepare for his coming? How shall we, the covenant people of God, prepare for the coming of our king? We prepare in exactly the same way as God sent John to prepare his people for his first coming. By repenting of sin and self-righteousness and by turning to Christ as our only hope. See, I'm afraid that many in the visible church today, the American Western church, like Israel in Malachi's day, we look ahead to the coming day of the Lord because we imagine it to be a day when Jesus will arrive to salute the American flag, to overthrow all of those nasty liberals, to smite the homosexuals and the Muslims and the illegal immigrants, and to pat us good church folk on our back for our religious awesomeness. But when so often the American church sounds like the Pharisee of Luke chapter 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, you know, the immoral and the homosexuals and the liberals and the godless atheists and the Islamic terrorists, you know. I pay taxes. I pay tithes. I teach Sunday school. I vote conservative. Will not Jesus' response be the same as it was to the Pharisee? Only one man in Jesus' story went home justified that day. It was the tax collector, the sinner, who in humble contrition knew he had nothing to offer to God. And so beat his breast and cried out for mercy saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It is not the religious who will be justified. It is the repentant who will be found faithful at the day of Christ's appearing. When Jesus returns, he will cast all the self-righteous from his presence and he will baptize them in a fire of his judgment. But the humble he will exalt. The contrite he will draw near. On the last day, the king will surround himself with people who have nothing in which to boast but him. So how do we prepare for the coming of the Lord? We empty our hands of all of our own righteousness. And we cling only to the righteousness of Christ. We empty our mouths of all religious boasting, and we plead only the free mercy of God in Christ. How how do we prepare to meet our coming King? By repenting of sin and self-righteousness, by embracing the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone for our justification, and by trusting the Spirit of grace to purify and sanctify us like a refiner sitting over silver, that we may be a holy priesthood offering up acceptable sacrifices of joyful worship in the temple of our God. See, the point of the parable, unless you misunderstand me, listen very closely. The point of the parable is not that God delights in extortioners, adulterers, unjust men, and tax collectors. That is not the point. God does not call evil good. He does not delight in the wickedness of men. 
The point is that God delights to take sinners, extortioners, adulterers, tax collectors, homosexuals, Islamic terrorists, justify them by His grace and purify them into a holy priesthood of joy-filled worshipers of Jesus Christ. But that transformation from an adulterer into a holy priest, that transformation, that justification, that purification begins with repentance. Empty hands receiving the free mercy of God as the only hope of salvation. So if you would be ready for Christ's coming, and He is coming, He will come suddenly into His temple. If you would stand on the day of His appearing, you must repent. Specifically, you must repent of sin and self-righteousness. You must empty your hands of everything but Christ. Evil things and good things in which you may hope. Unrighteousness and self-righteousness. You must empty your hands and reach out for Christ's righteousness alone and hold on to it with everything that you've got. The King is coming, beloved. Judgment must begin with the household of God. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear the fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The king is coming. Are you ready? My father, I ask for your grace this morning. For one great work in particular. I ask for empty hands all over this room. Empty hands. Hands that are emptied of soul-destroying sins. Sexual immorality, greed, lust, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness. And hands that are emptied of all self-righteousness, all of the righteous works in which we may be tempted to trust in other than the righteousness of Christ. Empty our hands of it all. Beloved, here today, empty your hands. And by faith, cling to the free grace of God in Christ. Cling to His righteousness. Say in your soul, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands, these for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. So in my hands no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Do not leave here until you can say that. 
And when you can say that, you are ready to meet your God. Father, I pray that you would work in this midst and call sinners to yourself. Humble your people that they may be exalted in due time. I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.